Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 136 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be speaking with Kelly Link, author of the short story collections Stranger Things Happen, Magic for Beginners, and Pretty Monsters. Kelly and her husband Gavin Grant also own and operate the indie publishing house Small Beer Press, and together they co-edit the short fiction magazine Lady Churchill's Rosebud Wristlet. Kelly's newest collection of short stories is called Get in Trouble. And now, here's our interview with Kelly Link. All right, so we're here with Kelly Link. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Okay, and so your new book is called Get in Trouble. So why did you decide to name it that? You know, you do the thing when you are getting ready to send out a book of short stories. You read through them all, sort of think about what order you want them to be in. And you also read to make sure they're not weird overlaps that are not going to work particularly well. You know, have you named a couple of characters the same thing, side characters, things like that? And you also start thinking about titles. And so as I was reading through these stories, I could not help but notice that these were all people with really poor impulse control hmm. um, who really are sort of um, maybe not always drawn to trouble, but they don't actually avoid it either and get in trouble. It felt like it was true to the spirit of those characters. Okay. And so for people who have read your previous short story collections, how would you say that this one is similar to or different from those ones? Well, you know, I, I think harder for me to say. Um, Looking at it from my side, um, you know, I think the there's still a lot of fantastic business in it um, this time around. Um, I kind of wanted to write some more zombie stories, but just didn't feel like I had any any zombie stories in me at the moment. Um, but I was really, really interested in in vampires hmm. this time around. So there's some vampire stories. Um, there's still a lot of adolescent girls, uh, which is always a fun point of view character to write. Um, and I don't know, I, it's possible. I think that the, some of the stories are a little grimmer. I hope they're still funny, but I think maybe the stakes are a little bit higher this time around. And I know that you often, you read a lot of your stories to fit different theme anthologies. Is that true in this book? Were, were a lot of these written to suit some particular themes? Yes, I think probably half of the stories were written for different editors, um, for Holly Black or Ellen Datlow. Um, and the thing is, you know, an editor asks you, do you want to write a story? Do you want to write a story about, um, for Holly Black, the anthology was, were geek stories. It was called Geek-tastic. And other than that, it was pretty loose. You could do whatever you wanted. And um, so it isn't so much that the, I guess the stories aren't so much geared towards a particular thing because most of the editors that I've worked with are pretty relaxed about what fits the definition of the theme. But it is a great starting place to have somebody say to you, have you ever thought about geeks? You know, what, what, is, what kind of story would you like to turn in? You know, board games or, um, you know, music. What, what's something that you would have fun writing about? And I actually wrote one of the stories. Um, actually, two of the stories were written for anthologies that Gavin and I put together. 
um, for Candlewick. And so since I was the editor for those, you know, I was pretty much sure that I would be okay with however I tackled the theme. <laughs> and, and what were some of those other themes that you uh, wrote stories for? Well, one of the themes was steampunk. Um, and again, you know, I, speaking from an editor, editorial point of view, uh, when we sent out the call for submissions, we said to the writers whose work we really wanted to publish, we said, we really don't have a definition. We just want to give you this word steampunk and see what you do with it. And how would you, what would, what would your version of a steampunk story be? And we got great stuff from people like Libba Bray, M.T. Anderson, um, some really fantastic stories. And a couple of years later, we did um, a collection or an anthology, rather, Monstrous Affections. And again, the, the theme was pretty broad. We sent out a call for submissions and said, what we want are stories about monsters and relationships with monsters, family relationships, relationships between friends, love stories, anything you want to do. We just want to see what you do with monsters. Okay, so you mentioned Holly Black, and I know that she and Cassandra Clare are two people that you um, you sort of talk with a lot about writing. Did they play a role in in some of these stories in this book? They um, absolutely played a role in the sense that um, Monstrous Affections came about because uh, I think Cassie and Holly and I were sitting around and talking about one of the tropes of the vampire story, which is you know, vampire story, in vampire stories, um, often it's a coming of age story as well, not for the vampire so much, but for the, for the main character. And so you have these adolescents often who get involved in vampire business and um, started really thinking about how strange it was that vampires so often fall for teenage girls hmm. uh, and fall so hard, in fact, that they're willing to spend a lot of time um, in high schools or doing very teenage things. Because, frankly, that sounds terrible to me. I mean, maybe I would make a bad vampire, but my high school experience was not so amazing that I'd want to repeat it a lot. Um, and so Cassie said that she always figured that if you were a vampire, in fact, the group that you'd probably want to spend the most time with would be your peers. and how tragic that moment would be when you realize that your your peer group, the group who shares a common body of experiences with you, is about to die out. And so she said she was thinking about writing a vampire story set in a nursing home. Um, and that was such a touching sort of unusual take on the vampire story um, that we started thinking of other kind of monster stories. So that was really the impetus for that anthology. So how did that influence stories in Get in Trouble? You mean my relationship with Holly and Cassie in general, or? Well, or, I mean, I was going to say, I mean, you know, like, there are two stories in this book, The New Boyfriend and I Can See Right Through You, that seem pretty directly um, related to the whole vampire phenomenon. Right. Absolutely. Well, um, The New Boyfriend was the story that I wrote for Monstrous Affections. And I knew I wanted to do something with sort of very large dolls um, that could more or less pass as people. And it was Holly Black, actually, who suggested, I, I said to her that I had part of the story, but I needed something to complicate the dynamic between the, the group of friends. And she said, well, with teenage girls, 
um, envy is is always you know that's that's one of the stages that you move through when you're a teenager is seeing different ways of life, sort of imagining yourself in, in that life, but you can't necessarily access it because you're a kid. And and so envy was a really useful hook <laughs> for me to build that story around. And how about I can see right through you? That is one of the last stories that I finished for the book. And again, uh, Holly and Cassie and a couple of other writers, um, Sarah Reese Brennan, uh, Maureen Johnson, um, I started that story, had to keep on putting it aside or restarting it, just couldn't get anywhere. And then ended up sharing a house with all of those writers and something about the circumstances, I think, uh, being with a group of people who are all doing their own work um, was useful to me. I really, really, really like hanging out with writers. I like the sense that everybody is working on their own thing, but then you get together and you you talk about what you're working on. And so I just sat down and kept on revising the start of that story until I could finish it. And, you know, that story probably took the longest of all the stories to write in the collection. And I, in some ways, like it best, I think, because it was such a pain in the butt to <laughs> write. And the premise sort of is that there, there are these two actors who had been a, a, an Edward and Bella from Twilight type couple years ago, and now they're kind of uh, in midlife crisis territory. They are in a very different point in their lives. I mean, I think the, the thing that was fun to write about that story was, um, I think if you're a public figure, um, and if you have been particularly well known for one thing, there are so many different versions of you floating around. There is your private self um there is the the sort of character that you played that people identify you with there is the perception of you that has to do with your career which maybe changes um as you continue to do the same thing or as you try new things and then there are the kind of relationships that you have with people who have seen you at different points in your life so the the main character who's been playing this vampire for a very long time um, is in sort of, you know, it's not really a life that I envy, but um, it was a kind of um, set of different kinds of self um, or I, different kinds of identities that was really fun to explore. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so one of our listeners and previous guests, Genevieve Valentine, wanted me to ask you about your uh, secret vampire. Uh. <laughs> Uh, I really, really like Genevieve's writing. And I like her novels. I like her short stories. And I really, really love what she writes about television as well. Yeah, I I, um, I find that I get bored pretty easy watching television. Um, and I realized that, in fact, that if there is not a fantastic or a supernatural element to a story, that I become wistful. And I think this show would be so much better if, in fact... At least one of the characters was a vampire. Um, you know, friends would be improved <laughs> if, in fact, they were vampires. Not that friends is bad. I just would like it better if they were vampires. Um, and then there's the thing that you can do if you're watching a television show. Um, and that's you, you sort of consider which of the characters is, in fact, although the narrative never acknowledges it, you imagine which one maybe is the vampire, um, which is sort of a fun game. So you pick any TV show, you watch it, and you think, all right, which one is the vampire? And usually there's at least one. And usually everybody sort of can agree 
that that's probably the vampire. Well, and Genevieve wanted to know specifically which show do you think would be most improved by uh, the revelation of a secret vampire? Well, I think any reality show would be improved <laughs> by by a vampire. You know, say you think you can dance, <laughs> be great, or even one of the cooking shows would be amazing. Uh, you know, that's actually the only genre of show in which I haven't tried picturing a secret vampire, but, you know, I think it really feels um, right if you think of Tim Gunn as a kindly, benevolent vampire. Hmm. Um, okay, so yeah, and so I Can See It Right Through You really deals very explicitly with celebrity culture. And a bunch of stories in this book deal with characters who are quite wealthy and quite selfish and self-absorbed. Um, and obviously, we're living in a time when income inequality is a big issue. I was wondering, do you think that the stuff going on in our culture uh, influenced these different stories, like in particular, um, Secret Identity and... Um, Valley of the Girls. Yes, I do. Um, you know, it's 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 a little bit hard for me to to tease through. I I did when I started looking at all the stories. Think about the fact that most of these characters were um, really well off. Um, many of them were extremely attractive. You know, most of them had a had a lot of um, a lot of privilege, a lot of advantages. Um, and so I I don't know that. Um, I don't know that I'm the right person to say what it means that I was writing about all of this, but um, it is true that, you know, we live in a world where it's really pretty obvious. You know, you can sort of see um, the lives of people around you, um, you know, whether they're celebrities or family members or whatever. You sort of look and you think, well, this is a very different way of life. Or you look at your own life and you think, you know, things are pretty good right now. And then you start to imagine, well, what if things weren't so great? And I think there, you know, there's a lot of, I would say this probably goes hand in hand with um, a lot of the apocalyptic fiction novels, short stories, anthologies that, that are popular narratives at the moment. And it's the same thing. I think that there's, you know, it's it's partly informed by the fact that many things are going pretty bad you know will there still be fish in the ocean in 2070 that kind of thing you think about that and so the post-apocalyptic fiction and the apocalyptic fiction starts to feel a little bit less like fiction well tell us about valley of the girls because that's a story with a really interesting premise that's a story about um a group of kids i started thinking about what it would be like um, if in fact, you know, things sort of continue the way they are and the rich get richer and richer and richer, um, and the kinds of lifestyles that their kids would be, would have access to, and also the kind of safeguards that maybe families would put up around those kids to keep them out of the public eye, sort of an inversion of the celebrity culture. So in the story, um, you know, parents sort of uh, hire faces um, who um, enact the lives of their kids so that if, in fact, they're being photographed or if they appear on, on social media, um, it is, in fact, these these replacement children who have been hired to enact sort of this, this perfect kid lifestyle. And at the same time, um, you know, maybe maybe they would the kids would have super expensive hobbies, and so I liked thinking about that. I liked thinking, well, if you were a kid, and in fact, 
in one sense, you were invisible to the world um, because the person that the world saw as you wasn't you. And on the other hand, um, you were really indulged. What kind of weird hobbies would you have? So the girls are really into building pyramids and the the boys collect antique rockets um, and just sort of taking that and sort of pursuing it and thinking about the kind of lives that these kids would have. Right. And these are, are pyramids like the Egyptian pyramids. So this is like Valley of the Girls is kind of a play on Valley of the Kings, I assume. Yes, absolutely. And I did think, you know, what is it? What are the things that we know about the way that people lived in the past? And sometimes the the biggest markers of the way that people lived in the past are, in fact, the really weird, extravagant gestures by people who had a lot of power and who wanted to be remembered. And I felt there was a tension between, you know, uh, adolescents who, in fact, were hidden away from the world, but who still wanted to make their mark. So... Maybe the person that everybody sees as you isn't you, but nevertheless, you're going to have a really big-ass pyramid. And so after you're dead and gone, people will still remember you. I mean, what do you think about just the way that, about that issue of just people growing up on the internet and growing up in the public eye and how bad that can go for them? Well, I think clearly it goes bad a lot of the time. Um, and, you know, we have a we have a daughter now. And so as I was going through this story, I was thinking of the weird ways in which parents become protective. You know, the world changes. There's not a lot you can do about that. Cannot necessarily protect your kids from the mistakes that they made. And if you did protect them from those mistakes, I'm not sure. I'm not really sure that that's so healthy either. Um, But, you know, in the this is sort of in my story, this is the first generation of kids who have faces, people who represent them, but who aren't them. And they are coming of age in sort of the terms of contract with their public um, personas, with these these other versions of them, is is coming up to to a lapsing point. And so then the question is, you know, are they in fact going to become themselves, um, or in fact, are they going to stay hidden for the rest of their lives? And I think it would be hard to give up that kind of privacy. In a, in a sense that, in fact, you know, sort of it, it would be a kind of a, a weird rich kid coming out. And here's the real me. Um, and so I, you know, that story sort of ends abruptly, but I still kind of enjoy thinking about some of the decisions that those those kids make. You know, do they, in fact, renew their contracts with their faces and um, go on living in private, doing whatever they want to do? Or, in fact, do they come out and make their own mistakes? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so that story, um, Valley of the Girls, and also your other story in this book, Two Houses, have more technological science fiction elements than other stories of yours that I've read. Were you sort of consciously trying to experiment more with sort of quote-unquote science fiction? Well, you know, I really love science fiction, and it is really hard to write. You know, I read it, and it goes down really, really smoothly. But if I try and write a story which is overtly science fiction, I'm in the weeds immediately. It's very hard to figure out what kind of details you give the reader. How is the world the same? How has it changed? Um, Frankly, Two Houses was a little bit easier to write um, because it's space opera. So it already is a little bit removed from a realistic science fiction setting anyway. 
And that was another story that I wrote for an anthology. It was an anthology of stories inspired by Ray Bradbury. So the thing that I got to focus on was how to make the story as Bradbury as possible. What were the, what were the things that I loved about Bradbury's science fiction that I could sort of build into that story? Well, and so, so what were those things? Well, I think, uh, you know, the things that were pleasurable to sort of think about with Bradbury was, was the idea that space is haunted, you know, that, that maybe you're a group of astronauts and you are sent out and maybe you are headed towards a place or you arrive at a place and, you know, it turns out that you have in some way, um, ended up in an inverted version of where you, where you started off, you know, um, I'm forgetting the specific names of the Bradbury stories, but the the story about the the crew that shows up on Mars, and in fact, they appear to have landed in their own own town, and they are their own families, and they are taken home by those families, and um, joyfully almost. And then in the night, turns out that you know the people that they thought were their families are in fact Martians, and the Martians murder them in their sleep, not out of malice, but because you know, the astronauts don't belong and they, the Martians don't want to be colonized. And that story really blew my mind when I was a kid. Um, and I still go back and reread the Martian Chronicles and his other collections. Um, so I knew that I wanted a group of people in space. I knew I wanted to make them astronauts. Um, I knew that I wanted it to be a, a kind of a ghost story. And the one change that I knew I wanted to make was I wanted to make the astronauts mostly a group of women. That it seemed to me that that if you were sending a group of people on a very long flight that that maybe in fact you would you would choose a group of women. And in, of course in Bradbury's stories the expeditions are all are all male. Well I mean and in two houses, yeah, there are these astronauts on this interstellar voyage and they're telling ghost stories to each other and one of the ghost stories that they tell i found just incredibly creepy the one about the two the two houses i guess you write of the title um is that how did you come up with that is that based on something or you know i had been thinking about that for a long time and in fact you know the two houses itself is a it's a club story it's a bunch of people in a spaceship or maybe a little bit bored and what they do in free time is they get together and they party and they tell stories. And the thing that, that sort of pushed me forward in that story, the thing that I most wanted to do was get to the point where I could actually have them telling ghost stories to each other. And the whole point of that was that, that story about the art installation, these two houses, um, one original and the other an exact replica that um, an artist has set up in, on an estate in England. Um, it was something that I had been thinking about for a long time. You know, there, there are many things that you cannot do in fiction. Um, you know, there's not a lot of physicality to writing. Um, I don't get to go out and build things. You know, there's not a lot of sound effects, things like that. And so sometimes it's very pleasurable to imagine what you would do in another medium. The kinds, if, if, if you still had the same kinds of interests, how would you express them in a different art form? And so for a long time, I had been thinking about performance art and also installation art and uh, how you would do something spooky with that. And, you know, it was the case that, that people used to 
bring over to the U.S. Um, haunted castles. You know, you would you would sort of bring the pieces of a house over and build it. And you know, I, I guess you did that because you were rich and because um, it made you seem fancy. And so I sort of imagine the opposite thing, which was which this artist um, bringing a piece by piece a a murder house from the U.S. back to an installation in in the U.K. Reassembling it there and then building an exact replica of that murder house and so that you had two next door to each other, but not telling the people who would come in and take a look at it which house was the real one and which one was the replica. Um, and then I started to think about the kinds of people who would live on the state with, with that kind of project. So when I finally got to that that story, that was that was the point where I sort of heaved a sigh of relief and thought, okay, now I'm at the heart of the story and I know what to do from here on out because I'd moved from science fiction back into scary stories, which is where I'm a little bit more comfortable. Yeah, I just think that's such a fascinating idea. Uh, I don't know, maybe someday uh, you can crowdfund that or, you know. <laughs> it doesn't seem particularly ethical. Um, <laughs> you know, much, much more, in fact, is it more ethical to tell it as a story than to actually create it in real life? You know, maybe not, but but I don't feel quite as guilty putting it in a story as I would if I were to actually be an installation artist and, and build it. That would be it'd be creepy to mess with somebody's real tragedy like that. Yeah. But it makes a good story. <laughs> well, I mean, you mentioned in the st- in two houses how most of the characters are female and how most in the um collection in general most of the characters are female. Do you want to talk about um you know how intentional was that or you know um just talk about why you choose to write about female characters uh, so much? You know, I I again when I sort of began to put the stories together for this book, I sort of I, I actually made a I made a spreadsheet because why not in which I sort of made a list of some of the thematic material which maybe echoed from story to story. Um, I I put down words like mostly funny or mostly scary um, or a little sad um, in in a column, um, I, and I put down the age of of the main characters and their genders. Um, and in part, that was so that I could think about story order, because you don't. And I, I also put in a, a little box, like, how long are the various stories? Because putting together the order of a short story collection is actually pretty complicated. And I didn't think it would be the final order for the collection. I wanted my editor to do that, but I wanted to present something that seemed to work okay. Um, and in fact, uh, at that point, I had not written the lesson yet. But when I sat down to write the lesson, I did think that I wanted one more story that had, um, you know, men of at least a certain age, just to give the collection a slightly different balance. Um, and so I don't think that this is particularly, um, I don't think that this is in any way an artificial constraint. I just think at a certain point when you've written a group of stories, you think, well, I've been doing this one thing quite a lot. So let's see what happens which might be interesting if i work with a different kind of character or if i think about a different kind of tonal quality right right and actually the the arc that i read didn't include the lesson in it i sort sort of found out online that the finished book has it so it it was i guess a, a last minute addition to the manuscript it was i wrote it this summer and i will um i can send you a pdf um you know it's it's a story about 
a couple, two men who go off to a wedding um, on an island. Um, and it was a story that I had wanted to write for a long time. Half of it I knew what I wanted to do with, and the other half sort of came to me as I was writing it. But it was originally a story where I thought, well, maybe what if I send off a woman newly single to a friend's wedding on an island, um, a destination wedding? And in fact, what if there's a bridegroom who is maybe a little strange, who doesn't show up? He's he's late. He's really he's he's arriving very very late. In fact, nobody's even sure if he's going to arrive at all. And there were a couple of other parts of that story that I knew that I wanted to write, and I just couldn't get anywhere with it. And part of that was because she, that character that I was thinking about writing, felt so similar in some ways to some of the other characters that I'd written recently. Um, and so once I made the viewpoint character a man, the story sort of moved into place for me. I was able to see it much better and, and write it. And, and I gather from reviews that this is the one story in the book that has no overt fantastical elements in it. You know, that was that was absolutely my goal when I sat down to write. And I, I thought, well, I'm going to try and write something which is a slightly different length. I'm going to write something where I do some interesting stuff with paragraphing. Because right now I am really interested in how paragraphs work. I feel I no longer understand how they work. I thought, I'm going to write some really enormous paragraphs. This, this is a story about an island. I want the paragraphs to have almost a sort of weird floating island quality to them. Like these big chunks. Um, and I also thought it would be great to write something in which I couldn't reach for that thing that I usually like to do when I write a short story, which is you know, a, a ghost or a monster of some kind. And I got along pretty well until I started to write in sort of one of the most fun, one of the most fun pieces of business that I knew that I wanted to put in when I wrote the story was a piece of taxidermy. And it comes from a story that my sister told me about a friend of hers who went to a wedding and there was a piece of taxidermy in the bed and breakfast where she was staying and it made a lot of noise. She kept on turning on the light, waking up, turning on the light, and then nothing in the room was moving. But she'd turn off the light and she'd hear noises again. And there was a piece of taxidermy by the bed. And eventually, um, she found out what was making the noise. And I knew I wanted to use that in this story. But I kept on thinking, well, I could make it a badger, or I could make it a bird. And instead, I ended up making it an animal that doesn't actually exist. Kind of a dodo. You know, it's this this extinct animal. Um, there are not even a lot of um, taxidermied pieces, you know, there are not a lot of them around, even in taxidermy form. Um, and in fact, it looks a little bit like a badger, but it doesn't have a real name. People just called, called them on this island. They called them bad claws because they have big claws. <laughs> so in fact, I could not entirely keep the supernatural out of the story <laughs> or the, the, the non-realistic rather. I mean, that, that's interesting, though, because, I mean, it does seem like the, the distinction between realistic and not realistic is becoming less and less meaningful. I mean, you know, um, back in 2005, when Michael Chabon put your story Stone Animals in Best American Short Stories, it just seems like a like this huge, unexpected thing to me. Um, and these days, it seems like that kind of thing happens all the time. Um, yeah, I mean, what do you think about that? How have things changed, say, in the last decade in terms of mixing together realistic and non-realistic fiction i you know i i love it sort of as a as a reader of books um you know it's been great for me as a writer um because 
I think there is a sense in publishing that that readers are much more open to stories which are not realistic. Um, and I also, you know, it's a shift which I think is is um, uh, you know it sort of happens every once in a while. I think that the realistic, the mimetic, the kind of the kinds of mimetic fiction which were popular so for so long, um, and the stuff which was considered um, genre, you know, fantasy or horror, science fiction, that those used to be much more intertwined than they were. There was a period in which they were much more separate, and now it seems like things are moving back together again, which is great. And I think in large part it's because there hasn't really been this kind of divide in most kinds of entertainment. You know, it's not as if people only go see realistic dramas about marriages they go see those but they also go see horror movies you know they also go see romantic comedies they see musicals you know you you just go to see things that you think you might enjoy and the same is true for um the same is true the same has always been true of poetry you know poetry um you know you you use whatever you as as the writer seems to work best to convey your point of view and to describe the world in some ways, um, to sort of put something together that 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 you you know you can you you give to the reader, you know these these sort of pictures, um, you know I the first two collections that I wrote, um, they came out and they were taken. I don't even want to say seriously. They received the kinds of attention that I did not expect to receive. You know, they were reviewed in places that I didn't think they would be reviewed in. Um, you know, I really expected when I was first writing short stories that I would mostly be writing for an audience that was pretty well-versed in genre and that loved specifically fantasy, science fiction, and horror. And I read outside of those genres. I read anything I can get my hands on, but I didn't necessarily expect that the kinds of work that I did would find a larger audience. So it's been kind of astonishing, you know, that these stories reach a larger audience. And there's, God knows, there's a lot of other really great work, which mostly reaches a genre audience that I think should reach a much, much wider readership. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, in a lot of ways, the last holdout in this has been academia. And I know that you, um, that you, you've done various fellowships and, and teaching gigs in, in academia. What, what have you personally seen in terms of how receptive people are becoming to more fantastic kinds of storytelling? Well, I always figure if I am being asked to teach in a place that, you know, the university or, or wherever is asking me to teach has to be open to a certain degree to, you know, weird fiction. Um, and in terms of the students, you know, I used to, I, I've done a lot of teaching. The most teaching I've done has been at the Clarion Workshop, the fantasy science fiction and workshop, six weeks that runs out of Seattle and also out of San Diego. They're summer workshops. The people who go write six stories in six weeks, um, they have six different instructors. And when I was a student there, and then maybe the first two times that I taught, one of the things I always do is when you are first meeting the students, you say, well, what do you like to read? And it used to be the case that, that the touchstone writers for them were mostly in genre. And now when I teach at Clarion, 
I would say, you know, people mention the same genre writers that they always mention, which is awesome. But they will also mention people, you know, like Eudora Welty or sometimes Raymond Carver, or they will talk about novels, which are realistic novels, sometimes nonfiction. Um, and the same thing goes for the MFA programs where I teach that um, I often ask, you know, what do you, what do you read? Uh, what's the stuff that you like to read? And uh, they read young adult and they read fantasy and science fiction as much as they read um, in sort of the realistic mode, which is super exciting for me. And maybe it's self-selecting because they've chosen to be in my workshop. Um, but the question that I now ask alongside that is I say, and I've, I've changed the way I phrase this. I used to say, what's the thing that you enjoy reading the most that you're embarrassed by? But in fact, most of the students are really smart and they're not really embarrassed to be reading what they read. So instead, what I ask, I, I used to say, what's your guilty pleasure? And they are like, well, it's not really guilty, but I really love and that they'd mention whatever. Um, and now instead, what I say, well, what's, what's the thing that you read that feels most at a remove, you know, from the stuff that you think that you want to write? And that's really interesting because sometimes it's romance novels. In one case, you know, it was um, gaming manuals. He said, you know, and this was a poet saying this. He said, I really love reading gaming manuals, D&D manuals. I just can read those for, for forever. And this was in a workshop up here. Um, and it was a mixed, mixed genre workshop in the sense that uh, both poets and fiction writers were in the workshop. and. A couple of the poets actually turned in really terrific science fiction short stories. Really, clearly very grounded in science fiction. So that was really exciting for me um, to, to see the kind of work that people were doing across genre boundaries. Yeah, well, I mean, do those people ever say that they read Kelly Link? Because, I mean, certainly from my perspective, um, among writers my generation, I feel like so many of them have been influenced by you. Uh, I mean, like this book has a board from Karen Russell, who is, you know, like one of the biggest examples I would think of someone, you know, just a brilliant writer who was was really, really um, strongly influenced by your, your work. You know, I really, really love her work. And when I read what she does, you know, I, I, I love it, I think, in part because um, it just it reads like her. I don't really see anything of myself reflected in it because that's always a little strange to read something and you don't you don't want to see yourself when you read um you know i i i that's a little hard for me to speak to you know occasionally somebody will say to me an editor will say oh i got a really i got a i got a kelly link story from somebody and i always think well what is what does that actually mean i have no idea what that means it's flattering um and a little weird but you know there are certainly a lot of people um, who I think, you know, whatever they were reading, they were probably reading some George Saunders, um, you know, and, and maybe they were reading some of the Ellen Datlow and Terry Windling fairy tale anthologies, maybe Angela Carter, um, you know, Shirley Jackson, um, things like that, Shelley Jackson. I mean, I think there is so much stuff, Jonathan Leatham, Karen Joy Fowler. You know, there's just there's a lot of work right now, which is right at that that sort of mixing point. And there has been, I think, for the for the last, you know, 30, 30 years, maybe 25, 30 years. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, I mean, one of the things that you 
that you mix into this book is the superhero stuff. I wanted to talk about that. Um, could you just talk about sort of your, um, did you grow up reading comic books? What sort of uh, history do you have with superheroes? You know, um, I did not grow up reading superhero comics. I, in fact, did not start reading comics until I was in college, um, maybe my last year of high school, at which point, you know, I would say half the time that I went into the comic bookstore, you know, people in the aisles would say to me, excuse me, sir, as they went by, even though I had long hair and was wearing a skirt, um, I think because did not seem like there were a lot of girls going to comic book stores, at least not in North Carolina. But the the comic book that actually got me hooked was Cerebus. I saw an issue of Cerebus in the window, and I just loved the art. And so I went and I bought that. Um, but as for superheroes, um, I saw the the you know I saw the Superman movies when I was a kid. I watched Batman on TV when I was a kid. And then probably after that, the next exposure to sort of that narrative was was things like Frank Miller and Alan Moore, which was really exciting. Um, and I was actually asked um, if I would contribute to an anthology of superhero stories, and I totally flubbed that. Um, two editors, um, one of whom was Owen King, asked if I would write a story, and I thought, well, I, I can write a superhero story, maybe. And I um, spent a lot of time thinking about sort of a Bradbury-esque superhero story and just could not get anywhere with it. I still have it in my head, but I, I can't figure out a way to make it work. And so I totally missed that anthology. But I think because I'd been thinking about that story for so long that when Holly Black asked for a story for Geektastic, you know, I, I managed something. Um, and I did that because uh, I I really love epistolary stories. I wanted to do an epistolary story. Um, and I wanted to write about a convention of superheroes at a hotel. Well, yeah, and this is this is your story, Secret Identity, uh, which I absolutely I love that story. Um, Thank you. What um but but you you treat the superpowers very much in a um you know, the, the, these aren't these aren't like action adventure superhero stories. The superpowers are all a little bit you know, every day and disappointing and, and so on. Um, what is it about the the sort of idea of these kind of disappointing superpowers that interests you? <laughs> I, and you know, this comes out of reading, um, you know, I think comics, the comics that came out of that generation after Alan Moore and um, Frank Miller, where you did sort of think about, well, what about the people who got the powers that weren't so amazing? And so, you know, I, I think in, you know, in, in, in the two superhero stories that I have, there are people who go out and do the usual things. And yet I cannot quite fully commit to writing a story about people who go out there and save the world, in part because so many people have already told that story. So I can set that story on the sideline of the story that I'm writing. But the thing that I'm actually interested in is you know, those weird liminal spaces in hotels and, um, you know, people who make um, statues of superheroes out of butter. That's the stuff that when I sit down and write that I think, well, this would be really fun to put in a story. Um, and I know, I know, and, you know, I, I say this and I still will go see a superhero story and I'm not opposed to a story in which people save the world. Um, I just feel that a lot of other people have done that much better than I could, or at least 
if I did it, it would not be, I wouldn't be bringing anything new to it. Well, and, and its origin story is set in an, an abandoned Wizard of Oz theme park, and, and I understand this is based on a real place. It is the the Land of Oz, um, which was an amusement park that I went to many times as a kid. And it was one of those places that was actually kind of boring um, once you went the first time. You were in a gondola, you know, there was taffy and fudge. There were people dressed up as the characters from The Wizard of Oz. Um, but in actual fact, you know, I don't know that I would have wanted to go there as an adult. But in any case, um, it closed, I think, by the time I was in high school or first in college. And um, it had sort of an interesting half-life after that. A lot of people would hike up and sort of hang out up there. Um, there were sort of people who would meet up in groups and go there and have a good time. Um, you know, sort of the equivalent of urban explorers, except you're doing it in the mountains in North Carolina. And then I think it was bought by a bunch of real estate developers. And I don't know if it's actually been turned into housing yet or not. I mean, so what was it about that, though, that made you want to use it as a setting in this story? Well, I'd always wanted to use it as a setting. And I think part of that is that, um, you know, Bauman and Oz is is such a, it's one of those American touchstones, you know, American mythological touchstones. You know, everybody knows the basic story of of Dorothy and and the Oz book and and the movie. So if I use part of that in one of my stories, you know, I've I've already got a secondary storyline running in there, which is people are already thinking about those those characters and and the shape of that story. And that's useful. And then there are ways for me to riff off of that um, and and tell a completely different story. And I, I'd always wanted to set a story in, in that, that place. Um, you know, I still go see my family sometimes in North Carolina, and we are up in that area. And I have never hiked up there to see what it's like now, although it's, I think, mostly fallen apart. Um, but it was a way for me to revisit it. Okay, so then another thing I really wanted to ask you about is that you and your husband, Gavin Grant, run the press, Mulbeer Press, and also edit the magazine, Lady Churchill's Rosebud Ristlet. I was wondering, could you just tell, like, what's uh, sort of what's the current status of those projects? Well, um, we are sort of at the point in the year with Small Beer where we are working on covers for books that are going to be coming out um, about six months to a year from now. Um, we are working on a Jeffrey Ford collection, an M. Rickert collection. Uh, there's going to be a sequel to Sophia Samatar's novel, A Stranger in a Laundria, um, which, which is really exciting for both of us. Um, and uh, with Small Beer, um, we are still putting out about two issues a year. We're going to have a guest editor for the first time. Michael Lucas is going to edit it for us. So that's really exciting to sort of pass it off to somebody else and see what kind of issue he produces. You mean with Lady Churchill's, right? With Lady Churchill's, absolutely, yes. Um, and that's, you know, the zine is something that we will always, I imagine, put out because uh, it's a way for us to publish newer writers. Um, and it's also a lot of fun to put together something that we don't necessarily go out in search of those stories. They come to us. Uh, and that's enormously pleasurable, getting the slush pile in and reading through it and finding work by writers that we don't know. I love short stories. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
I mean, I heard you say in an interview that if Amazon takes over too much of the book market, that that could put small beer press out of business. Could you talk about that? Well, you know, I think that this is kind of a crux point for publishers, whether um, as some, one of those, another one of those weird points in publishing where, where things just sort of shift. And, and part of it is, um, part of it does just have to, to do with economics um, that, that right now, um, you know, the margin is good enough for us to keep on putting out books, but if that margin shrinks, then, you know, Gavin and I don't want to, our goal has always been not to go into debt, you know, to make sure that the, the press is self-sustaining. And that's still very much the case that, that the, we, um, sometimes have years where something sells like pancakes and sometimes we publish work that we love, but doesn't necessarily find quite as large an audience. Um, but there is a certain point at which, um, you know, the margins wouldn't be sustainable. Um, and I think, you know, there've been all the articles about the issues that, that, um, self-published writers are having with, um, with Amazon in terms of, of, uh, how much money they get. And I think the thing with, with Amazon is they are, a um, company that sells a lot of books. Um, but I think the question is, you know, finding that point where, you know, booksellers or Amazon or whoever is profitable, but it's also profitable for the writers. It's also profitable for the publishers. So, I mean, should people then order books directly from your website or... You know, what I always, I, I think, I mean, I think there are two, two sides to this here. Um, Amazon is excellent at customer service. And I think there are many communities that don't have independent bookstores that carry the kinds of books that they want to read. Um, or maybe you have an independent store and maybe they're not all that friendly. I think most independent bookstores um, thrive because they understand the community. They carry stock that the community wants to read, you know, books. Um, they throw great events, things like that. But there are places where there's not a bookstore like that, in which case, totally understand why you would be ordering your books from Amazon. I think Amazon really serves a purpose um, for, for people who don't have great indie bookstores. Um, but what I always, what makes me happiest of all is when people, have a local bookstore or a favorite independent bookstore and they are placing their orders through that bookstore. Um, you know, I, if I, if my local bookstore doesn't have the thing that I'm looking for, I order it and then I just wait two days and it shows up. And the great thing about that is that you go into your independent bookstore and you find other books that you wouldn't necessarily know about, except they're, you know, in that store on the shelves. Um, I am an enormous fan of the independent bookstores. Yeah, yeah. Okay, then another thing I really wanted to ask you about is I was looking at the Small Beer website, and I came across this post where you talk about how you said that you would be bankrupt due to medical expenses if not for mass the Mass Health Program. Could you talk about that? Yeah, so our daughter, um, about six years ago, uh, was born at 24 weeks, um, which is pretty much right at the the point of viability you know um also i think i may hear her running up the stairs hmm. um so she um she was in hospitals for a year and a half she was in the nicu 
for about six months. And then we had to move to Boston so she could be at the hospitals there. Um, and uh, she's doing great now, but we um, did not have to pay for her care. Um, you know, she was looked after by excellent doctors and nurses, and all of that was covered by our health insurance. Oh, and this is her right here. <laughs> just shut up. All right. I need you to go downstairs and I'll be right down. Okay. She has just rushed upstairs because um, Gavin had to leave for his appointment uh, to demand that I watch a movie with her. <laughs> <laughs> so I think I have about two or three more minutes and then I should probably go join her. Okay. Sure. But she's, she's in great shape now. Um, but yes, we would, we would absolutely be bankrupt. We are on a lot of listservs um, with people who's, um, you know, who had children born in cir- similar circumstances and, uh, you know, it costs them a lot of money. And uh, Massachusetts, the the care that we had was was pretty extraordinary. And she needed a lot of help, and she got it. And and so this is the the Romney care that was the basis for the Affordable Care exactly. Act. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. And I I have no complaints. You know, we still think you know if people if 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 Massachusetts shut up and said. You know, great that you guys got through that, but we're going to take away your house now. We'd be like, okay, that seems fair. <laughs> um, but we're very, very grateful that we still have a house. Okay, then just the last thing I really wanted to ask you about is um, my girlfriend and I went and went to the Bell House last year to see a Great Gatsby erotic fan fiction reading. Wow. <laughs> that is a terrific sentence. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you th- th- you took part in it. So tell us, tell us about taking part in that. Um. So uh, this is an event that the the Booksmith in in San Francisco has been running for a while, where they uh, take a classic piece of literature and they ask a bunch of writers to write um, erotic fan fiction about it. And so I was asked, and I was honored by the invitation, and uh, I was working with Holly Black. We were working together in her house, and frankly, I was slightly, slightly, I was I was a little bit of a chicken. I thought. I could do this, I suppose. It sounds like a blast, but it sounds like it'd be a lot more fun to write it with somebody else. So um, we both went through The Great Gatsby, sort of um, made a lot of notes of stuff that seemed like it would be fun to rework, um, places where we could use direct quotes from the material. And we wrote a piece of erotic uh, fan fiction for it, and it was a blast. It was really, really great, in part because... I don't collaborate that much, and that was pleasurable. And also because uh, we got to see some extraordinary people read the fan fiction. Um, the the reading was was tremendous, and it was really great to see the to hear the the other pieces of fan fiction. Yeah, yeah, no, it was it was a fantastic event. Uh, oh, I'm glad really you enjoyed, enjoyed it. it. Oh, yeah, it was great. We had I mean, that was one of the most fun things I've ever done. <laughs> the whole experience was was positive. Was great. All right, great. So I guess I'll let you go now. Then uh, just uh, finally, do you have any other projects you want to mention? Anything coming up? Oh, boy. Um, you know, I know I, I'm working on a novel. Um, I'm going to be touring for this book pretty soon. Um, and other than that, uh, you know, no, uh, I have a fancy, not, I have a fancy new website. You know, I'm on Twitter, things like that. But Mostly, um, I just feel this enormous sense of relief that that all the stories in the book, I finished all of them, and that people seem to like them. All right, well, why don't you give people your website and Twitter? 
Oh, I am has zombies in it on Twitter, and the website is uh, kellylink.net. All right, so I guess I would encourage everyone to go check that out. Check out uh, your tour dates. Maybe you can catch uh, Kelly on tour. And I guess I'll let you go. Uh, you know, take care of your daughter now. Uh, thank you, and thank you so much for this. Oh yeah, yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, um, and Kelly's book again is called Get in Trouble. So uh, Kelly Link, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Hope to talk to you again. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Kelly Link for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes, including Dragon FB, who writes, Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a shining example of how great podcasts can be. The guests are interesting, the host comes prepared, and the conversations and stories are exactly what great podcasting is all about. I'm mad I just discovered it, and I can't wait to go back and listen to more great episodes. Keep up the good work, and keep the high-quality content coming. So, huge thanks again to Dragon FB for that great review. And, of course, a very special thank you to all of our crowdfunders, including crowdfunder number 43, Daniel Brisbois, who just made a very generous $25 contribution to the show. I'd also like to give a very special thank you to my all-time favorite Parisian, crowdfunder number 76, Bruno Ankir who's been giving us $50 a month and whose total contributions just hit an amazing $500. So huge thanks again to Bruno Ankir for the very generous support over the past year. This episode was also made possible thanks to support from listeners such as Carl Watson, Raymond Chan, Stephen Segarian, Jonathan Pottle, and Kurt Donaldson. So thanks, guys. We really appreciate it. To learn more, visit us at geeksguideshow.com and click on crowdfunding. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.